Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In this episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer starts walking us through the new series called A Life That Pleases God. If someone were to ask you what faith is, how would you describe it to them? Today, we walk through the question, what is faith? If you are in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Heath with today's message. What is faith? Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Today we're going to be tackling what should seem like on the outside a simple and easy topic, the topic of what is faith. I mean, faith is the single most important part of really our relationship to Jesus Christ. As it's been said before, you know, we are saved by grace through faith. I mean, it's how we're saved. The Bible says that we will walk by faith and not by sight. We're going to read here today that by faith, <clears throat> all the Old Testament saints got their commendation through God. God approved of their lives through faith. It's a pretty important aspect of our life as a believer. And you'd think then it would be a fairly simple thing to define what faith is. But faith is a complex term that defies just a, a real simple explanation, a simple definition. And, and do not even think that in Hebrews 11.1, 1, we're going to find a, a complete fullness of the understanding of what faith is, even from that simple definition that God himself provides. In fact, I would like us to view Hebrews 11.1 1 as what we often refer to as the definition of faith, really as an introduction of faith. It's introducing this concept of faith is, what faith is. It gives us a general idea of what faith is, but then it fleshes out and gives us a rich just tapestry of how faith is lived out in the real life with you and I. And so Hebrews 11:1. 1, hopefully you have found your way there. God, through Hebrews, all of Hebrews 11, is going to show us what faith is. He's going to give us examples, and he's going to give us some commentary as to what faith is. And today, we're kind of preaching in the margins. We're preaching what God says in between these examples of faith so we can discover what truly faith is in God's eyes. We see, number one, first of all, that faith is an assurance of the unseen. Faith itself, the Greek word pistis, is a word that, that means a persuasion. You're convinced about the truthfulness of something. We hear some things in life, and you're immediately doubting of it. You're, you're not ready to put your faith in that. Somebody posts something on Facebook. If you post this, you know, God is going to give you whatever you desire, and you don't immediately put faith in that, or you put faith in something. If you post this, that, you know, the Longhorn Steakhouse is going to give you a free steak dinner for you and 15 of your friends, and you, you doubt that because it's on Facebook, okay? But when we put faith in something, it means we're persuaded of the truthfulness of something, that maybe you saw it on a reliable news network or a close friend told you something, you are persuaded that it is true, and that's really what faith is. It's a persuasion that this thing that you're putting your confidence in is indeed true. And Hebrews 11.1 1 begins with a verse that we just heard a few moments ago. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and it's the conviction of things not seen. Often Christians, when we hear this phrase, we, we try to view these as two independent phrases communicating something utterly, entirely different. And that's not the case. This is a case of what, what we call Hebrew poetry, uh, parallelism. In this particular case, it's synonymous parallelism, which means these two phrases that the Bible repeats itself, there's a nuance of difference between the two, but what's important is not where they're different, but where they're the same. And so it's, re it's repetition for the purpose of emphasis and to amplify the meaning. And so that's what we find here in Hebrews 11.1. 1. We see, first of all, that faith is the assurance of things that are hoped for. Assurance is the Greek word hupostasis. Hupo, we're familiar with, means to uh, under. Stasis is the stance of something. It's something that is placed underneath. It's something that could describe a foundation of a building that we build our lives upon this thing uh, of faith, this assurance of things hoped for. It could describe, at some context, it describes the title deed to a house. In reality, this word assurance describes the reality that is behind something. Something appears a certain way, it represents it, but behind there is the reality of it. It's, there's what's underneath. It's the, that's why some translations will call this the substance. 
of things hoped for. There's what something appears to be, and then that's what it represents. There's what's underneath. It's what's re, uh, reality. And that's what this word means. It describes the reality that is behind something. It's a conviction that something is real. You're only hearing about it, but having heard about it, you're willing to put your confidence, your assurance, and your trust in it. That you're convinced that this is a, there's something true to this. In Hebrews 1.3, this exact term describes Jesus. Jesus came to earth to show us what the Father is like. No one has seen the Father at any time, the Bible tells us. But Jesus came to earth and he's saying, look at me. By looking at me, you can be convinced of the reality of the Father whom I represent. And so he is, he is this hypostasis. He's what's here, but he represents the reality that God is here and that he exists. And this is kind of a difficult concept, I think, at times to understand what is this hypostasis, what is this, this, this reality that is behind something. And so to help us along this line, and because some of you are hungry, I've got a picture for you. Let's go ahead and throw this on the screen. Ah, what is this? What are we looking at here? This is McDonald's, right? I mean, we've been around here long enough. You don't have, to, there's no word written out, but you know what this is. This is we say this is McDonald's, but technically this is a logo of McDonald's. It represents McDonald's. But when you see that logo, you don't just think this is a cute picture of a, a red square with rounded corners and a yellow M. You, you think of the reality that is behind this logo, don't you? In fact, I'd go as far as to say that is when you're driving down the highway and you look on the sign and it doesn't need to say anything else. All you see is this one little hint. You see this little logo. You don't just think, wow, that's interesting. Somebody painted a little red square with a yellow M on it. No, you're, you're convinced that this represents a reality, that you have a reasonable expectation and hope that this symbol represents an actual building and an establishment where you can go in and have a robot take your orders. That's where we're at today, isn't it? It's scary. But uh, McDonald's, you have a reasonable assurance that you can go there and then you can get yourself a Big Mac, fries and a Dr. Pepper and you can sit down and you can clog your arteries with the rest of America. And that's what this represents. So the logo in itself is not the reality, but it represents the reality that is behind there. When you see this small evidence, you believe there's a, you put your hope in it. Now this hope that the Bible is talking about, the assurance of things hoped for is not, I hope this takes place. I, I hope it doesn't rain today. You know, it's a, it's, this hope is a, an assurance. It's Christmas morning. It's sort of like when you see this logo on the highway and you're driving, you're hungry, and it's the only thing that's there. It, it causes you to have a willingness to pull off the highway and drive a mile and a half west until you find this establishment because you have a hope. It's a certainty and assurance that if I see this logo here, I know there's a reality waiting for me out there. And I'm willing to alter and change my life, change the course of my driving so that I can find the reality that this represents. This is the assurance of things hoped for, that there are certain pieces of evidence out here in this world that we have a reasonable faith, that God doesn't just say have blind faith that some guy had a, a vision under a Bodhi tree here and you just need to take it by faith that everything that he says is true. God gives us certain pieces of evidence in this life, if you will, logos, signs and symbols and representations that point to a, a true reality. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17 implies the same thing. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in terms of food and drink with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. Now, all that stuff he's talking about, he's saying all these Old Testament ceremonial laws, the things that they used to do in the Old Testament, the temple, the tabernacle, the priesthood, uh, all these little celebrations and holidays, the Feast of Tabernacles and Passover, that they in them, of themselves is not an end in themselves, but that they are a shadow, he says, of things to come. He says these are a shadow, it's a logo of the things that are to come, but the, but the substance is Christ. That all this Old Testament stuff is really just pointing to Jesus, that when you sacrifice lambs in the Old Testament, it's, it's representing the Lamb of God who will die for us one day. When you see priests operating like they do in the Old Testament and offering sacrifice one man for all people on the Day of Atonement, that it reminds you of Jesus who's going to one time offer a sacrifice for all mankind. So the Old Testament was a picture, it was a logo of things to come, but the substance, the reality of things is found in Jesus Christ. And that is our faith. It is a conviction of things not seen. So this is the other part of that parallelism. It's an assurance of things that we hope for, 
but it's also the, it's the conviction of things not seen. This word conviction, this is one of the cases where the Greek word really closely matches how we use this in the English word. When we talk about a conviction of something, you may think about a, a conviction, a personal conviction you have as a Christian, but most people out there, outside of the church, you say conviction, a lot of times we think of a court of law. And so a conviction is a, it's a, it's a belief, an awareness, an understanding, a persuasion towards something that this jury comes to based upon pieces of evidence. They're not eyewitnesses. They don't know this by, you know, for sure. At some point in time, the jury has to take it by faith that the pieces of evidence that have been presented before them paints a picture, a reasonable conclusion of what is real. And then they come to a conviction. He is either guilty or he's not guilty. And that's the, what the Bible says we do with God. That God, does, again, doesn't ask us just to place blind faith in him, just believe in this religion blindly with no evidence, that there is evidence all around this universe that points to God. And God says, I want you to come to a reasonable conclusion that I exist and I want you to search for me. Do we believe in a reasonable faith? You're not very convinced. It's raining. I know you're tired, but... Is this a reasonable faith that we believe in, or are we just a bunch of crazy people in some crazy cult, giving our money to who knows what and doing who knows what and singing crazy songs about blood and stuff? What are we? Okay, we are people who have been persuaded by the evidence that we've seen. All of you, whether it's the evidence of the Word of God or other evidences, Psalm 19 gives us some evidence about God. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. It goes on to say, day by day, it utters forth speech and that there's no part of the world that isn't covered by the speech. That whether you're here in Ashland, Kentucky, in New York City, or you're in the middle of some tribe in Zimbabwe, that, there, that we can look up at the sky and we can see evidence that points to God. No more clearly did I ever see that evidence than when my wife and I took a trip to Big Bend National Park. And the most impressive thing to me wasn't the park itself, it was on the way home from the park. That if you've ever been to Big Bend, you go out there and cell phones don't even work. I mean, this, it's no man's land. Nobody, I think like 35 people live within like three hours drive of Big Bend National Park. I mean, it's this really remote area. So there's no light pollution. And so my wife and I on the way back to our hotel, about an hour away from any civilization anywhere, we pulled off to the side of the road and we turned off the car, turned off all lights, and we just stared into the expanse of space. And I'm here to tell you, I was terrified. It was, it's this terrifying thing because with all this light pollution, all the distraction that we have in our life, sometimes we forget the heavens above and it just, it feels far away. But in reality, it's it feels like it's closing in on you. You get rid of all the distractions, all the light pollution. It feels like God is right there and you see the heavenly bodies, you see the stars, you see planets. And I had my little cell phone out and I, it's one of these deals, you can point to the sky and it'll show you where things are and then you pull it away and you see these constellations. And I just remember having this sense of dread awe of God. It's hard to get that here because there's so much light pollution, so many distractions in life, God feels far away. But in reality, you get away far out into nature, you realize God is real close. He is near and he is very, very real. And when you look at the planets and you see the immense size of the planets, you realize this is an omnipotent God that created it. And you see the infinitude of space. Why does inf infinity exist, people often ask me. We must have extraterrestrials. I don't know why y'all want to believe in extraterrestrials. You've watched the movies. They eat you when they show up. You are not interested in meeting E.T., and he's not interested in peace. Why does in the infinity of the universe exist if not for extraterrestrial life? I'll tell you exactly why. The heavens declare the glory of God. When you see an infinite expanse of universe, what does it communicate about the one who created it? He's even greater. He, too, is infinite. And so we look at the heavens and we see order and we see creation. We see the immense size of this. And we just think, what a mighty God who created this. The Bible says that is a reasonable and logical conclusion to arrive at when you see the heavens. But if you don't want to look at the heavens, look down at the earth below. Romans 1, 18 to 20 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That God judges sin. He says, this is clear to us. He says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, that we cover up the truth because it conflicts with the way that I want to live. So I'd rather believe a lie that lets me live how I want than to believe the truth that says I need to change. 
He says, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it unto them. This word plain here literally means to shine. It means to manifest itself, that you have this dark place and all of a sudden just shines and it draws your attention to its presence. Have you ever been in a dark movie theater? You're about halfway through the movie and some joker pulls out the cell phone. Have you ever been there? Happened when we were in China, it happened all the time. Like three or four times in a movie, people are pulling out and just playing on their phone. When they do that and they leave their screen brightness up at like 100%, you know, and you're watching the movie and your eyes are adjusted to the dark and all of a sudden this light shows up, it's, you can't ignore it. It's manifest, it shines, it's obvious. This is the word that means plain here, that there's this dark place and something just all of a sudden brightly lit shows up and it draws your attention. You can't not notice it. The Bible says that's how clear the evidence for God is in nature. It shines. It's too bright. You can't not notice it. You can't not see God through all of this. So what we have to do with the knowledge of God is suppress that knowledge. Why would anybody want to suppress that knowledge of God? Because of their unrighteousness. If God exists, I'm in trouble. And I want to keep living life my way. And so we take that what can be known about God and we cover it up. God goes on further in Romans 1, verse 18 to 20. He says, because God has shown it to them, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made so that they are without excuse. God says nobody's born an atheist. You have to be trained to be an atheist. God says the natural byproduct of seeing the, the sky above and the earth below, you look at our bodies, how they, you, you cut it and they heal, you look at our bodies, how they come together and they can reproduce something that looks a lot like you and your wife, hopefully more like your wife than you, men. Uh, but it's amazing. We see all these different aspects of nature and the ecosystem that God created and natural laws of, of science. And we are intended to conclude, Romans 1 says, that God is the one who created these things. That is a natural and reasonable belief. We'll talk a little bit more about this in a couple of weeks. So we see all this evidence. We can either receive it by faith Take the, just the, the obviality of God's existence and say, wow, look at the sky, look at the earth, look all around us. We, didn't, we aren't victims of cosmic chance and accident. We didn't just show up because of a big bang because you have to have a continuum for the existence of life, time, space, and matter. Big bang doesn't allow for that. Eh, we'll get into that later. But you can either take the truthness of God, what is clear and obvious, what shines and manifests, and you, you receive it by faith, or we suppress. It means to cover that evidence. We want to bury the evidence. You guys remember World War II back in 1945-46? After the conclusion of World War II, we, the world held what was called the Nuremberg Trials. Some of you probably physically remember those, don't you? And these Nuremberg trials, the purpose was is that there were a lot of war crimes that were committed against the Jews. The Nazi party being a completely anti-God and away from God and persecuting the church had their own ideas that led to violence and domination. And they, they perpetrated great acts, of just heinous crimes against the Jews. The gas chambers, the starvation, scientific experimentation. It was just, it's an atrocity. And at that time, because film footage was coming out the way that it was, the Germans actually took video evidence of some of the things that they did. And these files were recovered, and the prosecution was going to enter in these films that were taken of the atrocities they committed. And their defense lawyer, a uh, guy named Dr. Seidel, I think, and he said he tried to get these films thrown away. He tried to bury the evidence, to cover it as inadmissible, because in his opinion, these, these films of their atrocities were too condemning. He said, there's no way that my clients are going to get a fair trial if you watch these videos. The judge denied that, by the way. He said, this is what happened. This is, this is just evidence. This is not sensationalism. This is evidence, and it will speak against you. But they wanted to bury it because it's just too obvious, too clear. It'll lead you to an obvious conclusion that they're guilty. And this is the term, this that, that the Bible is using here, that, that the evidence for God is just too overwhelming, it's too obvious, it's too clear, and that for us to say that God doesn't exist, not to pursue him by faith, is to do like they did and want to bury the evidence so I can just go about living my life. That's the opposite of faith. Seeing the, seeing the evidence that's out here in the world and in the universe and coming to a different conclusion that a loving God created all these things. 
Well, what does it look like in real life to exercise such faith? We exercise faith like this all the time, don't we? Every time you go to the pharmacy, your doctor says, here, take this oblong pill. What is it made of? Doesn't matter, just eat it. And so you do. You trust him that it's going to make you better or help you in some way. Or we go to a hospital. I got a picture here. Would you go to this hospital? Take a good look at it. Would you go there? You're feeling sick. You need an outpatient surgery. You need something going on. Would you attend that hospital? I would wager that most of you Americans probably wouldn't, and I'll tell you why. Uh, there are certain evidences that point to the fact that perhaps this is not the place you're going to get the finest medical care in the world. Maybe it's the lack of doors and windows. Maybe it's the rusty roof. Maybe it's the dirt path leading up to it. The fact that all the uh, hospital signs are painted on the wall, and you're probably not going to entrust yourself there because the external evidence says, not a good gamble. What about this hospital? Got another picture. Would you go there? Some of y'all have been there. Some of you work there, you know? And so you see this hospital, you see something that looks new, it looks modern, it looks clean. There's an American flag waving in front of it. And it, that little bit of evidence causes you to do a little bit deeper search, right? So you go inside the hospital and you meet a friendly doctor and he's got a white coat on which says he knows what he's doing. And it's got his name monogrammed on it so you know he's real. And so you go to this doctor and you, you sit in his office and he's speaking very confidently about things, how he can help you. And you see his degrees on the wall and all of these little pieces of evidence paint a picture of a reliable doctor and a reliable healthcare system. Now, your knowledge of that doctor is not enough to heal you of that cancer he's gonna remove or that heart that he's gonna replace. It's not enough just to have an understanding and to say, I think this is a great system that we've got here. What do you have to do to be healed? You've gotta put yourself in the hands of that doctor. You've gotta let him strip you down and put you in an embarrassing gown and you're gonna make him put you on a cold, uncomfortable table and they're gonna wheel you into a room where it's, if, if, if you feel very nervous, there's a bunch of other people who are very dressed and you are not, and you're gonna let them put something over your nose and knock you out, and they're gonna do unspeakable things with a scalpel to your body. And you trust them to do this because of all the evidence that you've seen so far says, I can trust this guy with my life. And in faith, you close your eyes and you go to sleep and you wake up with a big Band-Aid on your abdomen when you're done. And that's what we do, that's faith. If you can exercise that kind of faith in a doctor, you can put your faith in Jesus. You see just all the different pictures and evidences of faith that are out here in the world, and it paints a picture that there's a reliable God out there. There's a mighty and powerful and organized, loving God, and I'm going to dig deeper, and I'm going to go inside that building, and I'm going to look further, and I'm going to investigate the evidence, and then eventually we stumble upon the Bible, and we learn more about this God, and we choose to commit ourselves to him. That's what we do when we get saved. By grace, you save through faith. We put our faith in Jesus, and that faith doesn't mean I just have an understanding of who God is and I think it's great, or that Jesus is some noble teacher. My faith is that I entrust my future to him like I do that doctor doing surgery on me. Romans 10.9 says that we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. I submit to him as my master. Do with my body, do with my life whatever you will. I will trust you. When you've done that, that's when we have put our faith in him. You confess through your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You have become assured of a reality of something you can't see. It's the assurance of things not seen. That's what we do when we get saved. We become assured that that is true, that there's really God, that there really is a life after death, there really was this man, Jesus, who lived and died, that he did it for me and that he offers it to me freely. I'm going to entrust my life into his hands like I would a doctor knocking me out for surgery. And when I close my eyes in death, I'm not crossing my fingers. I have an assurance in my heart that I know that when I close my eyes in death, on the other side, Jesus is right there and he's never been more close to me than that moment of death. And that is faith, that I'm willing to trust him the most precious thing of my life, and that is what happens to me after I die. I hope that all of you have placed your faith in him like this. You know, Jesus himself, this one that we put our faith in, uh, one time he detailed what he said was the greatest example of faith that he had seen in all of Israel. And you'll find it in Matthew chapter eight. It's this story about the uh, centurion. He says, when he had entered Capernaum, a, soldier, a centurion rather came forward to him, appealing to him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said, 
I will come and heal him. Now look what Jesus is offering him. He's offering him what all the Jews would demand. We have to see to believe. Like Thomas, I won't believe until I put my hand and fingers into his side and into his wounds. I have to see to believe. I want to put God under the microscope. I have to scientifically prove God before I'll put my trust in him. I'm not going to look at all the other evidence. I want to scientifically prove using my own brain, my own rational thinking that God exists or I won't believe. That's the Jews, but not this centurion. Jesus offers, I will come and heal him. And the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Isn't this what we do at Salvation? Before you'll ever be saved, you have to come to a place of humility. Lord, I'm not deserving of this. If today you're sitting there and you believe that the reason you're going to heaven is because you deserve it, it's because you're not going there. If you believe that the reason you're going to heaven is because all the good works that you've done, friends, you are trusting in yourself. And the Bible says, by the works of the law will no flesh be justified in God's sight. God is never going to let you in and say, well done. Amber, you really knocked it out of the park. Some of these other guys, not so much. But Amber, man, I, got, I died on the cross. I was hoping somebody would, would follow and respond. And you're so good. You did it. Guys, let's have a round of applause for Amber. That's, God's not going to do that. In fact, if that's our hope, our pride is in ourself. The glory belongs to me. And we strip God of his glory. And God says, my glory I will not share with another. And so as we look at this response here, this centurion says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come into my house. He realizes in humility, I'm nothing. I'm poor in spirit. I have nothing to offer you, Lord, but I'm, I fully accept and receive the, the power that you have. I'm not worthy to have you come in my house, but I tell you what I will do. I will believe your words. That's what he says here. He says, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Just say the word. I don't need, you. I don't need to see anything. I just need to see, read the words of God. I need to hear the words of Jesus and that's enough for me. And then he gives an example of why it, it sort of, he sort of describes his faith in Jesus by giving Jesus an illustration. Look what he says. He says, uh, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And another, come, and he comes. My servant, do this, and he does it. Now, to understand why that's significant, you have to know what a centurion is. A centurion, we, we see the word sent, meaning a hundred in there. This is a man who is over a hundred men in the battlefield. And you would work about 15 to 20 years in the Roman army to earn this title and position. It's a very prestigious position, highly respected. This is sort of like a, a super-powered quarterback in the Roman military because he was given the authority to override the initial orders and to make snap decisions on the battlefield. Quickly, and he adapts to the circumstance. Quickly, you guys go over there. Stand firm, guys, don't move. And, you know, move this way. Surround him, charge, retreat. He gives all these commands, and the men unflinchingly, immediately respond to his commands because they trust in the centurion. This guy knows, and he cares about me. And so I'm going to follow him. And he says, Jesus, this is the kind of faith I'm putting in you. I recognize your authority over me in my life. I recognize your power, your significance, your position. I realize that I'm nothing. Mind you, this is a powerful Roman soldier speaking to a Jewish carpenter. This Roman soldier knew exactly who Jesus was. And what do you think Jesus is going to say when he sees that kind of faith? Matthew 8.10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. He's just in awe. Okay, he's, it's just, it's amazing. It's, if you will, humanly speaking, shocked. He says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. That's what God wants from us. He wants to see a humility in our hearts. God, there's nothing in me that's any good. I don't need to see anything. I don't need you to prove anything to me, God. All you have to do is say the word. All you have to do is say it in your word, God, and I'll, I'll believe it, I'll trust it. In fact, I will build my life around that. When you can do that, you have exercised faith. Number two, we're gonna see here that faith is also, it's living for God's pleasure. Let's look at verse one, then following up with verse two. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it, faith, the people of old received their commendation. Who are the people of old? Is that our prime timers? Is that our adult four Sunday school? Who are the people of old? Talking about Old Testament saints, aren't we? We're going much further back than any of them. We're going back to the Old Testament saints. 
And he's, if you will, introducing this list of saints that he's going to go through, talking about how all those people in the Old Testament, they received their faith. He says, for by it, the people of old received their commendation. He's showing us that God's people have always lived by faith. A lot of times, early Christians, we sort of look at the Old Testament and the law code and the temple, and we start thinking, yeah, we're saved by faith in the new covenant, but in the old covenant, they're saved by works. You ever thought that? They're saved by works. They were saved by doing the sacrifices, but we have Jesus, and that's why we don't do that anymore. Well, it's true and false. They did do those things, but they weren't saved by those things. In fact, if you look at Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 3 through 4, he says, in these sacrifices... There is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood and goats to take away sins. They weren't saved by works. It's impossible for the blood of animals and goats to take away their sins. In fact, if we can back up a slide, I've got a picture of a mountain here I want to show you. This is the Bible. Okay, In the New Testament, we're looking back upon what Jesus did. Now, most of you were not eyewitnesses to that, I wager. Well, look at your birth certificate. You weren't there when Jesus died, so you're not an eyewitness. You're putting your faith in something that you cannot see, and yet you're persuaded, you're assured that it happened. Enough that you're gonna build your life around it. Enough that you're gonna get up on a rainy day, and you're gonna come to church, and you're gonna give money that you could've used to go out to eat, and you're gonna give it to further the cause of missions. That's faith. Okay, so we look back upon Jesus, who gave his life that we can't see. Old Testament looks forward to the Messiah who was going to come. We show our faith, James says, by our works. Why do we do good things? Why do I not gossip and slander? Why do I not lie, cheat, and steal? Why am I not immoral? It's not to be saved. But James says, I show you my faith by my works. I do it because I'm a born-again, converted being. Now, what about the Old Testament? They're saved by faith. Then what was the purpose of all the sacrificial system? You see where we're going? They're showing their faith by their works. These are the works that God called them to do. In Leviticus chapter 16, God commanded them uh, to offer the blood of animals. And so on the Day of Atonement, on your Kentucky calendar, the one that says Yom Kippur, uh, Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. It's the day where the priest, he would first get up and he would cleanse himself and put on his priestly garments and he would offer a bull in sacrifice for his own sins and his family so that he could represent man well to God. And they would take these two goats and they would cast lots to figure out which of these goats is gonna die and which is gonna go free. And they would kill this goat, which was a picture and a representation of what Jesus would do one day. And they offered the, this blood on the altar there in the Holy of Holies in the center of the temple in that little gold box Indiana Jones was looking for. Okay, And they are sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat to, as a picture of what Jesus would do for us one day. And that didn't save them. Blood of animals can't save people. It was, a, it was the faith in Jesus' blood that saved them. And they represented that faith by offering blood sacrifice there at the uh, at the mercy seat. All of this is just an act of faith. So they're saved by faith. We're saved by faith. And we do that. We work by faith because we want to please God because as we just read in Romans or Hebrews eleven six, without faith, it's impossible to please him. We want to please God. That's, the, that's what we're seeking. In fact, these Old Testament saints, why did they do what they did? It says, for by it, faith, the people of old, all the Old Testament saints, they received their commendation. They were looking for a commendation from God. They wanted to know that their lives were pleasing to him. That's why they did that. A commendation is simply a good report about somebody. In particular, it's a good report about somebody who is in a higher rank or position than you offering commendation for how you're living. Uh, in the military, often we'll use this word commendation. In fact, you might get a, a picture like this. You'll, uh, you'll see, uh, you'll get a letter, or not a letter, but a medal of commendation. This, is a, this happens to be a medal of commendation in the, in the U.S. Army. And what this represents, you can get it in any branch, though. But a medal of commendation represents consistently good or heroic sustained behavior over a period of time and somebody in a higher rank above you wants to recognize you and that's what all these medals are for they're commendation they're, somebody above you recognize the good character that you're showing and they want to essentially praise you for that using this term of commendation God says Christians get their commendation from God that we care that God notices what we do. We care that God is pleased with our life. We care that the way that I'm living is worthy of God's commendation. It's how they live in the Old Testament. It's how we live today. 
That's what living by faith is. We seek his pleasure. In fact, whom we seek to please indicates our God. If we spend all of our life just trying to please people, who's our God? People. Man is your God. If we try to live our entire life just trying to please ourselves, that I'm always happy, that everything goes my way, that at the job I get what I want, that at home in my marriage I get what I want, that when I come to church I get what I want, when I have a business meeting I get what I want, and I only care about what I want, what's good for me, what's according to my desires and my thoughts and my ideas, and every relationship is stripped to please me, who is my God? It's the deification of self. As a believer, what do we do? Our, our goal in life is to please him, not us. That's when it's, you're living a life of faith. You stop being your own God, and you care that your life is pleasing to him, not to yourself. Your life does not become precious to yourself. And without this, the Bible says, you can't please God. If you're not willing to live that way, you cannot please God, because Hebrews eleven six says, and without faith, living in this way to seek the pleasure of God, it is impossible to please him. Once again, what's the implication? I want to please God. The implication here is that all believers, if they're living by faith, want to please God. I want to make sure that everything in my life, God looks down upon it and says, that's approved, that's acceptable, that's good. Well done, good and faithful servant. Without faith, it's impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God to seek him out must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Do you care what God thinks about your life today? Or are you just here because you have a drug problem? Your wife drug you to church. You're here because somebody else wants you to come to church. Your kids said, Daddy, finally take me to church. And so you, you came here begrudgingly. But your heart really isn't here. In fact, you're thinking, when is this pastor going to be quiet and let me go home and get something to eat? Maybe that's the greatest desire of your heart right now. I don't know. Don't amen that. You're going to out yourself. Okay, what should be the primary purpose of our coming to church? It's to please God. God says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Come here and stir one another up to love and good works. Our, our, the goal and purpose of our life should not be to please myself, but to please him, which is really interesting because if you ask most parents, we're coming up on graduation, aren't we, parents? And some of you are looking to let your kids go. When I talk to parents and, and they're giving these tear-filled speeches to their kids about, as they're about to leave home, what do they usually say? My greatest desire for you is that you'll just be happy. And that's not a bad desire. I don't want to say, you know, I really hope, girls, that you leave home and that someday you find yourself in the fetal position on the floor, miserably depressed. We're not going to say that. So, I mean, we do want our kids to have a measure of contentment in life. But is that the highest ambition for a person's life, that they're happy? That, that their entire life, they're always... Happy just means that you're pleased with the outcome of something. Happiness is based upon happenstance. That you are pleased with the outcome of everything in your life. That you're always in a state of contentment, that things are going the way you wanted it to. Is that the highest ambition for a believer? When I read 1 Corinthians 10, it says, whether we eat or drink, even in the mundane things of life, whether we eat or drink, we do all to the glory of God. The greatest ambition, parents, that we need to have for our children is not that they live a life that's pleasing to themselves, but that they live a life that's pleasing to God, because in the end, that's all that's gonna matter. You can, go, you can lose out on all kinds of earthly dreams of yours and still live a meaningful, contented life because your life is pleasing to him. And so, parents, I'm just asking you, please pray, not just simply for your child's happiness, but that their life will please God, that they'll live a life of faith, that they'll glorify Him. I want you to see, too, here, that faith is not a one-time incident, a one-and-done deal. I've shared the gospel with so many people uh, in this area here, and you'll look at their life, and it's very clear they're not walking with the Lord. They haven't been to church in like 75 years. You know, they've, they're, they're strung out on drugs and alcohol, they're just, they're living in addiction and their, their mouth is like a sailor. But the moment you begin to talk about Jesus, all of a sudden their mouth cleans up and, oh yeah, I did that one time. And they tell you this big long story. One day when I was a kid and my mamaw took me to a revival meeting and we went forward and I went forward and I, I, I repeated a prayer after a guy. And so yeah, I did that. I put my faith in Jesus Christ. Is that guy saved? His life sure doesn't give evidence of it. You see, because faith is not a one-time deal, where as long as at one point in time you're willing to give mental assent to Jesus, yes, I think he's real, uh, I'm gonna repeat a prayer after you, I'm gonna write my name on the front cover of my Bible and the date, now I'm saved. 
but I'm gonna now go live the rest of my life according to what seems right to Heath, to glorify Heath, to look out for number one. Is that a life of faith? I would argue it's not. When we put our faith in Jesus, it's the first step of faith in a series of decisions by faith because the Bible tells us the just shall live by faith. Who are the just? It means those who are justified. It's a legal term that means to be declared righteous. God hits the gavel on the desk and says, you're no longer guilty. God says those who are not guilty of their sins and therefore saved, they do something to evidence that faith. What do they do? They live by faith, which means every decision I make in life is now by faith. I'm going to live obediently to the word God, trusting the outcome. I'm not gonna make decisions according to what seems right to me. I'm not gonna lean on my own understanding. And so it's a, it's a series of life decisions to choose to live by faith, and it just happens to be that the very first decision of faith is to trust in Jesus. But that leads to a series of faith decisions. I'm gonna trust Jesus the rest of my life. This one-time decision, this one-time oath leads to a change of how I live from here on out. It's sort of like when our soldiers, they enter one of the branches of the armed forces and they stand before here and they're looking all good and they're regalia and they're whatever they're holding and they're, they're looking amazing and they take an oath of office before they are, if, are officially inducted into that branch of the armed forces. And they will say something like this, thank you, Greg Jackson. Uh, I solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. You've heard this before. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me. They're recognizing rightful leadership and authority over you. He says, according to the regulations and uniform code of military justice, so help me God. This is an oath of office. Now, I would argue that for the men that I know in the military, this was, these are not meaningless words to them. These were not just a cheap oath that you just kind of casually threw out so that you could get a good paycheck in the army. This was a good faith commitment that I'm making a commitment now that I'm going to continue to live by faith. That even uses the term faith in that oath. I'm gonna live by faith, so help me God. I'm going to continue to live in a way that is pleasing to the armed forces living according to their code of military justice. For us, that's the Bible. When we put our faith in God, friends, it's nothing short of an oath of office. It's a one-time commitment that I'm going to continue to live according to the righteous standards of the word of God. I'm gonna live every day by faith, not just one, not just one little moment. I'm gonna live every single day by faith. And even when God's word says something crazy to me, I'm like, wow, this really goes against how I live. I'm gonna say, you know what? But I'm gonna trust God and not myself. I'm gonna do it his way. Yeah, there's gonna be ramifications for me. It's gonna make my life harder to do it God's way. People are gonna laugh at me. They're gonna scorn me. Maybe I'm gonna have to move out from my girlfriend's house and, and maybe find some stinky fellas, you know, to shack up with. That's okay. It's okay, but I'm gonna trust God that that's gonna to lead to my best outcome. And I'm gonna do that. And it's what, the, it's what our soldiers do. And, it, and most of these soldiers, by the way, it's not even just a commitment in their hearts for their term of service in the military, you find a lot of these soldiers, they will take these values in to, all the way to the death. They're the first ones to stand and hold their hands over their heart when the national anthem's being played at a ball game because this meant something to them. That wasn't a one-time commitment, cheap, shallow words to get in. And with a believer, friends, if all of your commitment to Jesus was cheap, shallow words to try to avoid getting out of hell, but now the rest of your life you're living according to what looks good to you, can I offer to you, the Bible does not give you great confidence that you're truly a believer. The Bible says that just live by faith. We don't just make a one-time faith decision in Jesus. We are continually seeking the commendation of God. In fact, Paul writing to Timothy right before Paul's death, 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 4 says to Timothy, share in the suffering. Means you're not going to just live life to please yourself. You're gonna suffer for God's sake. Share in the suffering is a good soldier of Jesus Christ, and he says no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. A civilian pursuit is all the extra stuff that you do for you. You're not doing it for the glory of your country anymore. You're doing it for you. It's the stuff that makes you happy, the stuff that makes you pleased. He says, we don't get all entangled in that as a soldier. He says, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Paul recognized to Timothy, even as a, 
even as a soldier, you realize that when I join the military, my whole goal at that point, doesn't matter how I think, how I think we should be, it should be done, how I think we should attack or retreat, what matters is what does my commanding officer say? And I want to please him, and so I'm gonna do whatever it takes to please him and to receive his commendation. The Bible says, as Christians, this is what we do with God. If you're living by faith, you don't care what pleases you. If you're living by faith, you only care that God is pleased. And at the end of your life, you hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You obeyed my word. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Did I get everything I wanted? Who cares? Everything that we have here disappears. This church will be gone someday. My home will be gone someday. My life will be gone someday. And everybody's recollection of the existence of Heath Bauer is going to be gone someday. And that's okay. Because God will remember me. And I believe that with a firm assurance and confidence of my heart. And that's what faith is. It's an assurance of things that you can't see. And yet I'm just as convinced and even more convinced that that is more reality than the earth I'm living in today. When we live by faith, when we desire to live a life that pleases God, it's, it's really born out of a heart that loves him. Don't you change how you live because you love somebody? I mean, I hope you do. If you got married and you're still the same joker that your wife married before, you're still trying to live the bachelor life, can I tell you, you're probably not too pleasing to your wife, men? A little marriage advice. No, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 5 describes love, and he says love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude and does not insist on its own way. That when we get married, we're no longer allowed to live selfish lives. It's not just about you. It's about also pleasing your, your mate. 1 Corinthians 7 even recognizes that, that when a man gets married, his goal is to please his wife. That's when you know you love somebody. Your goal is that you're going to live in the continual pleasure of that individual. You're not doing what 1 Corinthians 13 says, things that are rude. Rude means you don't evaluate how your words and your actions affect the people around you. You just care about you. I wanted to let out a loud burp, so I did it right there at the dinner table. I don't care how you feel. I don't, I don't care if you find that distasteful. As, as children, we chew with our mouth open. You know, I don't care that that makes a, a vile noise to others and disturbs them and causes them to lose their appetite. I'm going to live how I want. That's not love. love. Love is not rude. It's why we change how we live when we're living with somebody that we love. It's why when I first got married, I had a lot of bad habits. I, I, am, I was no catch, I'm telling you. My, my wife married me. I grew up watching uh, Home Improvement on the TV. You remember that? A funny show until you realize the guy is constantly scorning his wife. And I thought I would try out some of those jokes when I got married. I thought that would be really funny. Get a lot of laughs from everybody in public until my wife gently reminded me, it's really not very polite to, you know, to use me as the butt of your joke. And I thought, wow, okay, you're exactly right. And I repented of that. I was like, I was, I was off. I realized that some of my bachelor ways that I drew in of leaving whiskers in the sink and just walking away, probably not a good way to live. So, you know, on a good day, I will wipe up my whiskers on the sink, or at least some of them, or most of them. Enough, I give, it, I give my best effort, don't I? <laughs> and there's many other things that I did that I'm trying not to do that bothers her, right? You know, I, I used to be very comfortable in using my clothing as carpet just sitting there. I had no problems walking on my clothes. Iron? <laughs> Who needs it? It's, but when I get married now, I actually come home on my days off. Do I not? I clean my room, and I make sure all my clothes are put away nicely and neatly. Do I do that because I have this intrinsic desire to live in this, this beautiful, wonderful home that's clean and you know, smells like lavender? I don't. I do it because this woman right here, I love her. I care that she is pleased, and I modify how I live. I repent and change to live in a way that's consistent with what she desires. And when we have faith in God, we do the same thing. Like David said in Psalm 19, 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. doesn't matter if I think it's acceptable. Is it acceptable in your sight? that I change how I speak. And even in my heart, I want to be the real deal. I want even the way that I think when nobody's looking, nobody can see what I'm thinking about. I even want the way that I think in my heart to be pleasing to you, God, because I know you see that. When you can do this and you care what God thinks about your life, you care that God hears what you say and who you say it to, God, you, when you care that God sees what you're thinking inside your, your heart, 
and you modify how you think because you want to please God, friends, you're walking by faith. You're living by faith. Anything else is not faith. And so when we come to the place where we realize that we have an assurance that God is real, that heaven is real, that God's word is true, we have an assurance that Jesus Christ is truly man and truly God, that he truly died on the cross for my sins because I couldn't do it for myself. When I come to a place that I'm, I'm assured of these things and I make it my hope, the thing that I'm building my life on, then I will steer my life in a different direction to be in conformity with what God's word says so that I know that God is pleased with me. Friends, it's at that point you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's not just a cheap little prayer that you offer and go about living your life your way. It's about living a continual life. It's an oath of office. I'm gonna continue to live my life by faith, always seeking the pleasure of God. Faith is the the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Friends, do you have that? Do you have this kind of faith that we're describing that your whole life is just consumed with the pleasure of God? Doesn't matter if I'm happy, is God happy? Then I'm happy. Am I uncomfortable but God is happy? I'm willing to accept that. Friends, that's my prayer this morning, that when we read the illustration, the example of faith, you're gonna look at that and see that it's going to challenge you at times, but that you're going to see that you at least have the kind of faith that is willing to seek the pleasure of God. Because if you don't, friends, the Bible does not give us assurance that that, that, that faith saves us. As James says, faith without works is dead. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning as we study your word that you remind us of this key and most essential attribute of our belief, and this is our faith this unshakable confidence and persuasion, a conviction that we have looked at these pieces of evidence and we have drawn a reasonable conclusion of your existence. And because of that, we have sought you out. And having found you, we'd want to live in a way that is persistently pleasing to you. God, I pray that for each one of us who are here today, that we are living by faith, that we're not people who have just offered up a few cheap, shallow, and meaningless words to avoid hell but that we have chosen to daily walk in a way that you look down upon our words, our actions, and even what we think in our heart, and that you're pleased. God, cause us to care what you think about our actions and our, our words. And Father, if there's any here who does not know your Son as Savior, Lord, I pray that their heart would be convicted to respond to you in faith this morning and to walk home today with an assurance that they're a child of God. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time. May we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.